You are listening to a Wavel Room podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go for your podcasts. But if that's not enough for you, head to wavelroom.com where you can read our articles, you can follow us on social media, where you can come and join us at one of our live events. This Wavel Talks podcast is brought to you from live recordings at Chase's Global Analysis Program Conference in 2018. In this episode, we hear from Steve on why collective training needs to be harder, Nick on why the Army should drop loyalty from its core values, and Andy on hyper-elitism and organisational culture. We hope you enjoy. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Steve, uh, and tonight I want to engage with something that we all do, but none of us talk about. And you, you've guessed it, I want to talk about collective staff training, CAT and CAST. Um, so for the next three minutes, uh, I want to put across the key argument that the Army, we, the organisation, needs to make a bold change to the way we train our staff officers, our core business. And I'm going to put forward four things I think we need to do it. And the first is we need more realism. The second is we need more hardship. The third is we need more friction. And the fourth is we need more failure. But first I want to consider what is the problem with CAT and CAST and staff training at the moment. Um, I've done a lot of staff training. Some of my friends call me a combat ninja because I can make overlays. But the problem with CAT staff training at the moment is it's too comfortable. And we often deploy into a warm tent, into a building, and we don't deploy in the way we would want to deploy in operationally. Um, throughout the course of today, we've had many people tell us about the threats which are coming. I can't think of one example of, of a staff training exercise from the last three years of my experience is that any, any relevance to the operational environment we're likely to go into. So what is my solution? Um, the first is to be more realistic. The army is undermanned. We don't have all the capabilities we want, yet we still deploy in cast orbats and 100% manning with full capabilities. It's just never going to happen that way. If, it, if an infantry has a subunit with only 60 soldiers, then in the simulation, that infantry unit should only have 60 soldiers. If Freediv doesn't have enough guns to reinforce it, then he shouldn't assume it's going to get an American battery or American air defense or uh, an armor brigade combat team to reinforce it. Uh, and, a, and a second point from that is we need to stop picking the wars we wanted to fight. Throughout today, we've learnt about information environment and everything else, uh, but all of our staff training is based around a high-end conventional warfare on the plains of uh, Eastern Europe or in Estonia. We need to stop these assumptions because none of them are true. The second point I want to make is we need more hardship. Deploying into a warm building or a warm tent with hot meals every day is great, right? It's a nice environment, I get it, but it's bullshit. Uh, if we deploy into the field, we deploy in armoured vehicles, eating rations in, in the cold and rain, uh, and there'll be a genuine threat against us. In my experience of running staff training, uh, we've deployed headquarters with a live Op 4 fighting them, meaning they need to stag on. If they have bad light discipline, they get attacked, they get bumped, they have to move. Changes of command, moving at headquarters should be routine and inside our DNA. And if you look at the size of some of our formation headquarters at the moment, you've got a question, would they actually survive in a real, in a real combat situation? Because the answer is probably no. So our staff training needs to reflect the reality of operations. It needs to be harder. Uh, thirdly, it needs more friction. Now, we have many ways of simulating friction. Abacus, Warsim, uh, CAT, uh, the Combined Arms Tactical Trainer, simulators. And these are all great. But they're not very good, are they? Fundamentally, they're not very good. And there's much better civilian systems out there already. And because they're not very good, and because they don't actually create frictions as we'd expect, what we often end up with is a long list of injects. Uh, and one of the best examples, or the worst example I've seen of this, was a cast I was on, and where the inject was getting uh, a copy of Kit Magazine, which deals with long burning equipment issues, such as uh, you know, brake discs failing, or the, uh, the, the lead example in this particular one was about the lids for water containers not seeding properly. And the genuine serial for this battle group was to distribute that knowledge. And that has no relation to any of the, any of the conflicts we want uh, to fight. So we need to stop relying on our imagination to generate frictions. We need to start generating better levels of friction. And that needs to be re uh, related to the operational environments we want to fight in, not the one we think we're going to want to fight in. 
And the fourth point is we need more failure. Everyone says it's good to fail, yet I've not met anyone who's genuinely failed in any training exercise. I've met people who failed because it's been by design, but I've never met them fail because they've taken a risk and, and, and done something which is a genuine, a genuine thing which might lead to failure. Now, the only way I can see to get around this is to be more competitive. So at the moment, on our, in our CAST training cycle, we have a battle group which faces a, an OP4 which largely fights a doctrine. We've picked the, com the conflict we want to fight. Well, why not align our entire training cycle, say, the specular each year, the OP4 is provided by the first division and have a division facing off against the division. For a brigade CAST, why not align a, a, a brigade against another battle group or a brigade against a brigade? And for our battle groups, well, why not run two CASTs simultaneously? We have the capability to do it and have a battle group genuinely fighting a battle group. This will both lead to failure, it becomes very, very difficult because you're fighting a real enemy who wants to beat you because they're your mates for the regimental pride and for all sorts, but it also means that our, we will actually give people a chance to fail, a chance to take risk and a chance for someone to exploit them and so there's training benefit both sides. So overall, we as an army need to fundamentally change the way we look at staff training. We need to be better. And the four ways I propose to do it are more realism, more hardship, more friction, and more failure. Uh, good evening, my name is uh, Nick Gunnell, and my proposal for this evening is that loyalty should be removed from the Army's core values. Uh, I see your loyalty as a speed bump, as an impediment, as an excuse, and as a danger. Mission command does not require loyalty, yet it requires discipline, courage, respect for others, selfless commitment, and above all, integrity. But, I repeat, it does not require loyalty. A yes man or yes woman has no place on the battlefield of today or tomorrow, and the blind, wavering loyalty and obedience belongs on the Victorian, in the Victorian Napoleonic squares. It does not have a place in the high-tech, multi-dimensional battlefield of the 21st century. Loyalty supports the hegemony of rank in all aspects of military life. It dampens creativity and it suppresses innovation. Why else did the troopers of the Lancers in the 1930s cheer when they heard that they were finally getting rid of their horses and getting the Valentine tank? Now, I'm not proposing that Congresses are held in FUPs or election-style campaigns are run when choosing a COA. But emphasis on discipline and knowing when, and importantly, when not to speak up and challenge does away with the need for loyalty to be one of those core values. When a commander delegates a task, they need to know that the task has been done well and that the reports they're getting back are honest. This is integrity, not loyalty. Loyalty is personal, and it's this very human thing that makes it toxic and dangerous. And loyalty has led to war crimes going unreported and safety issues being bypassed. And in turn, this has had strategic effects, strategic shockwaves, casualties, and a, lock of and a lack of trust. Excuse me. Loyalty to comrades goes against Chilcot's truth to power. It goes against an army trying to reform and embrace technology. Why else would we have Victorian man instructors in this 21st century army? So what is the most important core value? The answer is there is not one. They're all as important as each other, but the presence of loyalty under undermines those core values. If we want to be a progressive army and we want to speak truth to power and innovate, we need to respect the past and view it with integrity. We need to have the moral courage to acknowledge our failures and we need to have the discipline and culture to know when and how to challenge and not be blinded by loyalty. Loyalty supports a culture of, I was just following orders. And as history has proven, that doesn't work out well. Loyalty is at odds with moral courage. It overrides integrity, but it can be replaced with greater emphasis on discipline. 
If we do not remove loyalty from the army's values, then we, are we not guilty of being blinded by it and ignoring the other values which hold true when not accompanied by loyalty? Put simply, loyalty adds no value and should be removed, if not replaced, with, uh, with something else. What that is, I don't know, and I look forward to discussing it. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Andy Johnson, and I'm not a soldier. Uh, I used to be for 24 years until 2009, and now for my sins, I'm the Senior Lecturer in Leadership at Anglia Ruskin University London. Uh, and I've come here this evening to talk about organisational culture, or at least an aspect of it. Uh, now, organisational culture is well reported in military circles. Uh, a number of articles have been on the Wavell Room recently, including one on hypermasculinity. Interesting article, full of very good points. Uh, but I think the slight issue when we dis discuss hypermasculinity is that we turn it into a debate about gender. Now, I'm guessing that most people in the room are aware that masculinity, like femininity, are human traits and can be ascribed to any gender, not just men or women. However, 95% of the population of the world don't get that. So when you start talking about hypermasculinity in organisations, you turn it into a gender debate. Uh, my experience as a soldier and now as a civilian working in the private, the public and the not-for-profit sectors is that there is a, a much more fundamental issue with organisational cultures. Uh, and that is an issue that I call hyper-elitism. And interestingly, the organisation where I found hyper-elitism at its most pronounced was in an organisation that was staffed entirely by women. So hyper-elitism doesn't get confused by the gender debate. It exists in organisations regardless of the gender makeup. Uh, so what is it? Well, it's a kind of organisational culture where a very small number of people within that organisation dominate the cultural nar narrative. Uh, in particular, uh, they define the organisational belief system uh, and often the policies and process that, processes that take place in that organisation. These people are seen as the legitimate voices of the organisation uh, to the exclusion of everybody else in that organisation. Why are they the legitimate voices? Well, sometimes they are self-appointed uh, and it comes by virtue of rank, but not exclusively. Uh, these hyper-elites can exist at any level of the rank spectrum. Uh, quite often we confirm, uh, confer elite status on the hyper-elites. Uh, that could be, for instance, to use a military example, someone who comes with a number of interesting badges on their, uh, their jacket. Uh, they might have had some interesting command appointments uh, and they might be viewed by people as a person of credibility because of their, their recent military history. Uh, and what they tend to do is dominate this cultural narrative. So what do we get from that? Well, a lot of people think that the hyper-elites are the people that generate innovation in organisations because their messages are often radical, very different to the norm, and they shake up traditional ways of doing things. And that's true. They do bring radicalisation to organisations. But that radicalisation is normally a result of a personal agenda or a personal interest. And the effect that comes from it tends to be very short-lived, normally as long as that member of the hyper-elite is in the organisation. As soon as they move on and change appointment, that sort of issue tends to disappear. Whatever they were pushing forward disappears and is replaced by the new flavour of the month. And what that also does is it suppresses true innovation. Uh, you get a small number of voices contributing ideas to the organisation. It excludes other voices, less glamorous voices. Uh, and actually what we need to do is get all the voices in an organisation contributing. Not only that, providing effective scrutiny to the hyper-elites and their own personal agendas. Uh, if you want to see an example of this in practice, uh, at a macro level, 
you can look at the way the British Army basically blundered its way through the first few years in Afghanistan. As each new brigade rotated into theatre, they did it their way. They had their own ideas of how they were going to solve the Afghan problem. And there was no long-term continuous plan that was the result of true innovation. Um, if you want to look at a very public example, the next time there is a news item on BBC or Sky News and they've got a talking head commenting on military issues, I can guarantee you that probably 95% of the time the speakers will come from one of three groups. They'll either be former senior officers who were privileged enough to command troops on a high-profile operation. Uh, they will be recipients of gallantry awards who the media now think have all the knowledge in the world to talk about issues from recruiting to grand strategy, or they'll come from a group of people that we might call ex-special forces. And I use the term special forces with a really big set of quotation marks. They are the three groups of people who tend to dominate the media narrative when discussing military issues. If you look within your own units and subunits, you will be able to identify the hyper-elite, the people whose voices always get heard, even though they don't necessarily deserve to be the voices that get heard. Why am I saying this? I bring no solutions to you. Um, it's not just something that happens in the army, although it does happen in the army, and it's happened since at least 1985 when I joined. It happens in virtually every organization that I've come across. And the larger and the more complex the organization is, the more hyper-elitism tends to breed. My point here is that it's natural in organizational life. We should be aware of it and guard against it. It might be exciting, it might be radical at the time, but often it leads us down false paths rather than pursuing true innovation in a sustainable way within our organisations. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. The Wavel Room is free to use, but it's not free to produce. So head down to wavelroom.com and maybe donate us some money so that we can keep going and keep creating that content that we know you love. Thank you.